You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Wilson. Good morning, uh, friends and family. Uh, my name's Adam. Uh, if I haven't gotten to meet you yet, so you haven't gotten to know me. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, still getting used to teaching and preaching in front of the camera. Uh, on Sundays when we're together, it's such an interactive event. I can see like your head nods, your spiritual yummies. Spiritual yummy, if you didn't know, is like a mmm, like a just, you know, kind of sound. Uh, I can see you falling asleep or picking your nose. Uh, it's all interactive. But uh, so one of the ways you can interact and even help us is just interact over just a Facebook Live kind of outlet that we have right now uh, as we're going through this is this great text in first Samuel 8 and I don't know about you guys I have not been a huge fan of the mirror these days uh, just because of my like long hair and just this scraggly beard uh, I've rarely wear worn pants with a button uh, anymore these days and so just a lot of times I'm walking by the mirror and I just find myself like looking at the side and be like mm, bro you need some help <laughs> And uh, my loving bride also has has not uh, has not uh, <clears throat> forgotten to give me a loving, kind reminders that uh, my parents needs a little work. And even some of you, lovingly through social media and uh, through text and through emails, and when I see you, have reminded me that uh, I look a little little scraggly these days. So thank you for uh, for the reminder. But I am reminded this week that. The mirror is still a good thing. Uh, Even though I may not always like, or we may not always like what we see in it, uh, the mirror actually shows us reality, imperfections and all. And the only way to correct those imperfections is to see them first, and and then we can look to a remedy. And this is actually what the Bible is for us, a mirror. One of the things this book does is as we look into it, it shows us our true nature. So it's so important to remember that, especially as we're going through an Old Testament book like 1 Samuel, because it may seem like an archaic uh, book that has nothing to do with us. You might think, man, what do I have to do with farming culture and the ancient Near East and kings and prophets and judges? Well, listen to what the Apostle Paul, well, listen to what he has to say in the New Testament about how we should view these stories in the Old Testament. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, now these things, talking about Israel's history, happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of ages has come. So these stories, their timeline are a distant past for us. But God has supernaturally preserved and miraculously given them to us so that we can know him and we can know ourselves. And many of you, this is your first in-depth look in the book of Samuel. And for a lot of you, this is probably your first time really looking uh, much at the Old Testament at all. These are people with a different language, a different culture, a different zip code. But we see that where it counts, we are just like them. And so this story is meant to mirror our story. So in this passage, what we're going to see is the nation of Israel, they're going to make a request. They want to reject reliance on God and exchange it for a puny human ruler. 
and often we're going to see that we make the same types of requests. And so we have, uh, I want four points I want to see in the text that Adam just read. Um, the first three are just the things that I want us to see in ourselves. First, we're going to see that we have our subtle rejections. And then I want to see that we have tyrannical idols that we put up. And three, I want us to see our obstinate hearts. And seeing these things in Israel is not, in ourselves, it's not meant to discourage us, ultimately, but it's meant to move our eyes and our gaze towards God. Because 1 Samuel 8 offers us a gaze off the mirror to God to show God that's steadfast and patient and wise and desires to bless. So lastly, as we look at God's response in the last couple of verses of this passage, we're going to see that we have the only satisfying king. Sound good? Let's, uh, let's go ahead and dive in. So uh, the request that Israel makes. First, we're going to see our own subtle rejections through their subtle rejection. And uh, we're going to see this in verses 1 through 9. So when we're starting out in chapter 8, we're realizing this, the book has pressed fast forward since our last time in 1 Samuel uh, from last week uh, to the end of Samuel's life. If you're just joining us, so Samuel is uh, this miracle baby born to this woman, Hannah, and really is like one of Israel's greatest like prophet, prophets ever. He's like the prophet of the prophet. Uh, he heard from God and, and led Israel between these times of these like scattered tribes to this time of this big centralized uh, monarchy government. And so Samuel's staring down his last days, right? And he wants to put, naturally, a successor in place. Who's going to take my place? And in verse 1, we read, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. So, naturally, uh, hey, I'm going to let my boys take my place, the ones that I've raised up, right? And uh, that makes, I think that makes sense. So surely a godly man like Samuel would just have some top-notch godly dudes to come and take his place, right, as his sons. Uh, but this isn't what we find. Verse 3 says this. It says, Yet Samuel's sons did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after gain. They took bribes, and they perverted justice. So unfortunately, his, uh, his two sons really just turned out to be a couple goons who just saw spiritual leadership as an opportunity just for their own gain and their own purposes. Now, if you're paying attention, this situation should sound a little familiar if you've been with us in 1 Samuel. A spiritual leader looking for people to replace him. He's got two sons. The two sons end up being, up, being like a couple hooligans. Uh, that's the same story from Eli that we read towards the beginning uh, a few weeks ago of Samuel. He has two sons that he wants to replace himself with. Uh, Eli didn't correct his sons. He didn't put God first. And so when his sons turn out to be just crazy, you're like, oh, that makes sense. They didn't have a lot of great example. But Samuel, he's, he's constantly commended for his godly life. And so how could his sons just turn out like Eli's sons? And one thing this is showing us is that your godliness does not guarantee godliness in your kids or those that you have influence over. Uh, God often does and will use a godly example to draw kids to himself, but he doesn't always. Samuel, he grew up with these terrible examples around him, but he still sought God. And then Samuel's sons, they grew up with one of the best examples of godliness, and they end up going buck wild, right? So parents, I want you to hear, your kids will benefit from your godly example. But at the end of the day, they will only follow God with a miraculous transformation that only he can give, that you and I, as hard as to say, have no control over <laughs> So let's desperately pray that for our kids, that they would be transformed. 
So everyone sees in Israel that Samuel's sons are going to do this. They're going to do a terrible job. They're going to wreck the country. So they go and talk to Samuel. Uh, and they say this to him. They said, Behold, you are old, if you didn't already know. Uh, you're old, Samuel, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So Israel's leaders, they see, they see a good opportunity here. Uh, they see something that they had been itching for for a while. A monarch, a, a king. And they have a couple immoral guys that are coming up in the in the. Um, the government. So the solution is just let's just blow up the whole system and let's get a new form of government. Because at the moment, Israel had these 12 tribes that were loosely connected, uh, but they wanted powerful, centralized government around a king. And, and Samuel, he is not a fan, right? But why not? Because it seems like a logical solution. Look, all the other countries over here are doing it. They're getting along pretty well. We got a couple of hoodlums that are about to come up and they cannot rule. So we need to make a change, right? That makes sense. Maybe it was that um, God was against kings. And that's actually what I originally thought when I was looking at this text. But when I look back at Deuteronomy 7, that's not it. Um, before that time, God actually tells Israel, hey, you're going to have kings and appoint kings for yourself. And I'm going to give you guidelines for that. So going into this, God has already said, you can have kings and here are guidelines for them. So there's actually nothing inherently wrong with Israel's request for a king. So like, Samuel, what's your problem, man? Are you just upset, a little defensive about your sons not working out? Or, or what's going on here? And we get more clarity once Samuel goes and prays to God. Listen to how God clarifies what's really going on in uh, 1 Samuel 8, verses 7 to 8. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all they say, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving others, other gods, so they also are doing to you. So we see the request has its motives peeled back. God peels back the layers for us. God calls it a rejection of his rule over his people. So in itself, there's nothing wrong with Israel's request for a king, but they want it for the wrong reasons. Their motive behind the request reveals this complete lack of faith in God as their king. And what Israel calls this logical request, God calls utter rejection. So what God is showing us here is that there are different ways to reject him. Um, when you hear rejection of God, you're probably thinking, uh, like, just doesn't believe in God, atheist God. If you exist, I want nothing to do with you, or you don't even, you're not even really there. Um, and that definitely is rejection. But what we're seeing here is another form of rejection, a more, a more subtle form. This type of rejection says, yes, God, I will follow you. But I won't really depend on you for everything. Or, God, I follow you. Yes, I worship you. My hands are raised on Sunday. Yes, God, I'll follow you though I have. But I just need these few things to be secure over here for you to grant me security. Yeah. And for Israel, rejection looks like trust in a human figurehead over the God of the universe. One commentator, his name is... Um, oh, Ralph Davis. Dale Ralph Davis. <laughs> he helps us here. <laughs> He says this, their help, Israel's help, now was not in the strong name of Yahweh, but in a new form of government. It's not monarchy, but trust in a monarchy that is the villain. Wow. So it's this rejection through demanding God give an additional source of comfort in security that's the problem. 
And we're seeing that the only way that we're given to follow God is through complete dependence and trust. I, could pro- I want to give you a little just illustration to illustrate this or maybe help you get your hands around this a little bit. When I was growing up in high school, I would go to these youth camps uh, over the summer. And one of the things we do, these outdoor activities, one of the things we would do is we would go rappelling down this like 100 foot cliff. So if you don't know what rappelling is, you just like basically strap on a rope and lean over a cliff and just kind of go just, <laughs> just kind of bounce down the cliff. Uh, not bounce down, but glide down. And... I still remember it vividly the first time I got to do this. Um, the scariest and the hardest part would be right when you got up to the edge. So you strap the rope around, you back up to the edge of the cliff, and you'd be looking over, and the instructor would say, okay, plant your feet and lean back. And at the edge of the cliff, what you got to do is just lean back over the cliff, perpendicular to the cliff. And the reason this was the scariest part is because you were letting go of any chance you had to save yourself. Because if the rope broke, you had no way to grab anything. You had no way to save yourself. If the rope broke, then you were just gone. You were taking a tumble down a 100-foot cliff. And uh, sure enough, though, I leaned back and the rope held. And then you were able to kind of like glide and bounce off the rock wall down this 100-foot rock wall. And you're able to do it pretty quickly. It was awesome, actually. But it was interesting seeing how different people did it because not everyone was able to do this. Some people, when they backed up to the wall, they would look over and the instructor would do the same thing. Hey, lean back. And they wouldn't lean back. They would take a foot and they would just reach their foot down. Or they would reach a hand down. They would start just getting footholds and handholds. And they weren't repelling. What they actually were doing was entrusting just their own feet and hands to rock climb down this wall very slowly, very cautiously. Um, but they weren't repelling. They were rock climbing basically with, with repelling gear. And it would took them forever to get down this thing, just climbing down. They had the same equipment. They had the same rope. What the difference was is they didn't depend on the rope. Uh, they used it as a backup, not as their lifeline. And so that's how many of us subtly reject God. He just becomes our backup plan. He, he's our last line of defense in case everything we plan doesn't quite work out. So that's what Israel was doing. They're using God as a backup plan. They weren't leaning on him for their hope or their security or their prosperity. He was just their safety net. And guys, we can so easily turn to God as our backup plan. We can say things like, sure, God is my security, but if I don't have three months of living expenses in my savings account, there's no way I can be secure. Or, yeah, God's definitely my contentment, but if my kids don't go on to like have straight A's and get the Nobel Peace Prize, I'll never be happy. Or, of course, Jesus is my first love, but, man, if I, if I never get married, I don't think I could really be happy. And when we do this, our obedience to God becomes conditional. We suddenly just present our, non, our, our non-negotiables to God. And we'll say, God, I'll follow you if blank. You can maybe fill in the blank for yourself there. And I want you to think about what are your non-negotiables that you present to God? There's a couple questions I want to give you to think through what that might look like, what some of those could be. First... What do you have consistent anxiety about losing? What do you fear often that you're going to lose? Secondly, if blank were taken away, I would question God's goodness or love to me. If blank were taken away, I would question God's goodness or love for me. 
Friends, the only way God invites us in to joyfully follow him is unconditional surrender. Conditional obedience is disobedience. I want you to hear that again. Conditional obedience is not obedience, it's disobedience. Because we put conditions on God because we don't actually trust Him. We don't trust the rope, so we try to climb down in our own power. But, but I want to encourage you to, to look back on God's trustworthiness because he has a perfect track record through all history and, by the way, throughout all of your life as well. He'll always do what's right. He'll always do what's just and what's loving. He'll always do what's best. You cannot control him, but you can trust him. He's the only one that can rely on you to hold your weight. So we, we took our first look in the mirror, right? We've seen how we can subtly reject putting our trust in God and, and put our trust in other objects, other things, other people. And next in the mirror I want to look uh, at is God's going to show us the nature of what it looks like when we put our trust in these little kings, these little idols. And that's my second point that I want to see in verses 10 through 18 is that we have these, uh, I want to look at these tyrannical idols. So even though God, God acknowledges this is a sinful rejection, but you know what he tells Samuel? He's like, give them what they want. They're asking for it, so obey their voice and give it to them. And the only stipulation God gives is this. He says, solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So, so God basically tells Samuel, hey, uh, out of love, warn them. Let them know what they're getting into uh, before you grant the request. And the description of this human king is tragically ironic. Because Israel, they want a king who's going to give them peace. They want a king that's going to give them security. They want a king that's going to prosper them and give them hope. They want a king that's going to give. But as Samuel educates Israel on what the new king is like, do you know what the most common phrase is that comes up about this king? It's three words. He will take. Listen to these verses. The king will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen. He will take your daughters and perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields. He will take a tenth of your grain. He will take your servants. He will take your flocks. This king will take and take and take. Samuel ends his warning with this summary statement, which is a good summary in verse 17. And he says, after he takes everything... He says, you shall be his slaves. You're going to be his slave. Israel thought the king that they wanted and desperately needed would just give them everything they ever wanted. But they were wrong. Instead of being in control of this king, the king would enslave them. Instead of being recipients of prosperity, they would hand over their most prized possessions. And this is what happens when you and I set up for ourselves other kings, little kings, besides God. We end up serving the kings we thought would serve us, and the kings become our tyrants. Wow. And we all have these, just so you know, just in case you're wondering. We all have these little kings we try to set up. If you have to be successful to find your fulfillment, then your king is success. You overwork and you're distant from loved ones. You're never truly satisfied with what you've accomplished. You get jealous of anyone that has more success than you, and you get angry when people don't acknowledge your accomplishments. 
If your success is your king, it becomes your slave owner, not your savior. And eventually your enslavement to success will take your family. It will take your health and it's going to take your joy. If your mind always has to be busy, then your king is entertainment. Increasingly, you grow attached to just the warm glow of a screen. Or thinking about just your next experience. You have a growing discomfort with being still and alone with your thoughts. You're exchanging entertainment with meaningful interactions with those around you. And without words, you can communicate to the people that you love that they're becoming second best. And eventually, your enslavement to entertainment and experience will take your ability to truly rest. It will take your enjoyment of your loved ones, and it will take your fulfillment. And if you have to be well-liked to find fulfillment, then reputation is your king. Your actions and your speech are always enslaved to please people. You live in fear of offending someone, and you can't stand the thought of criticism. You'll sacrifice your morals and your dignity and who you are on the altar, on the altar of everyone's approval of you. And your enslavement to your reputation, it'll take your peace, it'll take your confidence, and ironically, it'll actually take away the most genuine relationships you have. So you might be thinking to yourself, nah, I don't serve any of these kings, or I don't, I don't do this idol thing. Listen to, I just want to give you a couple, couple authoritative quotes here. One from, from Paul in Romans 6. Uh, he says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. And uh, another authority, Bob Dylan kind of interprets this, summarizes this well. He says in his song, you're going to serve somebody. That's basically what Paul's saying, too. We all are going to serve somebody. We all have these kings that we subtly set up outside of God. They promise fulfillment, but they will enslave you. Every king, every one of these kings says, please me, obey me, and I'm going to make you happy. Money says, get me, you'll be happy. Success says, find me, and you'll be happy. Kids, entertainment, career, influence, power, independence, fame, all these things, they all say this. But they also say this. It's like the fine print. If you disappoint me, I'll make you miserable. This is what money says. If you fail to get me, you'll be poor. And you'll amount to nothing. And you'll be hopeless. Success says, if you fail to get me, you'll be a loser and you will amount to nothing. Wow. And it's compared to these tyrant kings that we see the beauty of the king that we're meant to have and where he shines. Because the God of the universe comes down to Israel to give them a much better king yes. himself. Come on. And we who follow Jesus can look back at the same God who came down as a man to be our king. That we always needed. I love what Tim Keller says in his book, uh, The Reason for God. He says this. I think it's really applicable to this text. He says, Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, will fulfill you completely. And if you fail him, he will forgive you eternally. So he doesn't punish you. He forgives you. All our tyrant kings that we set up, they promise fulfillment and they never deliver. And on top of that, when they fail you, they, they grind you, they crush you, they punish you. And Jesus is the only one that grants the fulfillment that our hearts long for. And when we fail him, he shows mercy and his love shows all the more in our weakness and our failures. 
The kings we make for ourselves, they take and they take and they take. But the true king, Jesus, he gives and he gives and he gives. He says in John 10, he said, I came that they, that us, may have life and have it abundantly. And so Jesus came to be your king, your king and my king. And we hate to have lives overflowing with his abundance, overflowing with his peace, his joy, his satisfaction, his mercy, his justice, his hope, and his love overflowing from our lives as he gives. Idols leave us thirsty, but Jesus leaves us satisfied. Idols never stop costing us, but Jesus never stops giving. Idols damage everything in our lives, but Jesus redeems every aspect of our life. That's right. Yes. And I hear this, and I'm like, I'm sitting here like, it's amazing. I ever think it's a good idea to set up these little puny tyrant kings in my life. <laughs> but I still do it. I still struggle to set up reputation and security and hobbies to serve instead of King Jesus. And a lot of those examples I said earlier, not from people I've talked to, but knowing my own heart. So we see we, how, can we, how we can subtly reject God, how we can set up tyrannical idols. And thirdly... I want to see that we can have obstinate hearts. We can have obstinate hearts. Verses 19 and 20. So Israel's rejecting Yahweh as their king, to, for a human king that they want to set up. They've heard Samuel, that, hey, you're rejecting God, and they've heard this long list of how the king's going to oppress them. And I don't know about you, but I, I was like, I feel like Samuel makes a pretty good argument, right? Hey, guys, um, I've been hearing from God my whole life, and you've been listening to me speak God's words to you. Um, and I think this is a bad idea. Your king is going to make you miserable. And so you should, you should not do it. And uh, at least from Israel, you might, I would feel like you'd expect just like, eh, maybe we should sleep on it. Or let's just like, maybe we should talk about it a little more. Or let's just like take an hour to, you know, just debate. Nope. They don't do that. Uh, this is what they do. This is how they respond. But the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no. But there shall be a king over us. That we also may be like the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out and fight our battles for us. That's verses 19 and 20. Every time I read this verse, like every time I've read it, I get a mental picture of my daughter, um, Selah. That's one thing she does sometimes. If I'll tell her, hey, Selah, can you clean your room? Can you go to bed? Um, hey, eat your peas. Sometimes what she'll do is she'll do this. She'll close her eyes and she'll put her hands over her ears. <laughs> She acts like she doesn't hear me. She really does. I know she hears me, right? But she doesn't want to hear me. And this is how Israel's, Israel's reaction just seems to me. It just seems childish. After hearing about how destructive their decision is going to be, they just stuff their ears and scream, No! No! I want it! I want it! I want it! And I know we don't like to think of ourselves as doing that, right? I don't like to think of, see myself and my daughter, but the truth is I see myself in her doing that all the time. Mm -hmm. Refusing to listen to God or to others that God's placed in my life to get what I really want. Uh, I could probably give you a long list, but one that came to mind as I was seeing through the sermon is I've uh, wrestled with uh, holding too tightly uh, hobbies, namely one like fly fishing. And in the past, I've, uh, I've taken trips, I've spent time, I've spent money on wanting to get those things and that next kind of fix of entertainment or, or hobby time at the expense of the ones I love, at the expense of our bank account in an unwise way. And the times where I've done that, 
I knew, I think deep down, where I've done something that I knew was not, was not good and right, but I just wanted it anyways. I think deep down I knew or had people or my loving bride telling me, hey, I, you probably shouldn't go on this fishing trip a week before I have our, our kid. Uh, <laughs> but I had like, you know what, she's probably right, but I'm just going to go. And I, I, I heard it, but I didn't really want to hear it. And I wonder if you can relate with this. Have you ever just felt like you just needed something so bad or you deserved something so much that you just plowed past God and you plowed past people in your life that were giving you good counsel? That's good. And some of you have gotten in credit card debt this way. Some of you have gotten in toxic relationships this way. And some of you have gotten into deep depression or anxiety this way. And we see here that in Israel and with us that knowing the facts is not enough. Education does not change our heart. And for our world today, education is the savior, right? Uh, from any evil. If people could just learn about blank problem, it would be fixed. We would be saved. If people could just get educated on climate change, if they could get educated on racism, if they get educated on finances, yeah. filling whatever problem you're dealing with, they get educated on <laughs> masking and social distancing, and <laughs> everything would be all good, right? But that is a delusion. It assumes this inherent good and this inherent selflessness in our hearts that honestly is not really there. For Israel, education was not enough. Education informed them, which we need, but they still made the wrong decision. They needed more than education. They needed transformation in here. And when we pursue something above God, our hearts get hard. And we need more than education as well, like Israel. The only way we can have our obstinate hearts transformed is just to submit it and hold our hands open, as Pastor Mutasa talked about last week. Submitting our wants and our, God, I deserve this, and our, God, I need this under King Jesus. And just saying, I just, I trust you. Yeah. All right, fam, we looked at the mirror. <laughs> we saw... We subtly reject God, how we willingly enslave ourselves, how we don't like to listen. But it's not a flattering image, but this is grace because it more clearly, the more clearly we see our imperfections, the more we will love and appreciate the grace and the healing that God is giving us. So as we look at our last point here, I want to look at God's response to Israel and that he is our all-satisfying king. Last two verses show us this. Okay, so the people, they still want to pursue their path of subtle rejection and idol worship. And listen to how God responds to them. Verse 22. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go over to me into a city. So the obvious question that comes up here is, God, why did you grant the request? Mm. If they're choosing to reject him and pursue something that's going to actually cause them pain, why didn't God just say, no, no, I'm not giving that to you? The scenario here, the scenario here seems totally backwards. Um, the word obey is really important in this passage. In this passage, Israel, three times, or, or time and time again, it says they won't obey God's word through Samuel. But then three times, God tells the servant Samuel, hey, obey their voice. Ooh. Obey their voice. And so why would God so patiently listen to a people that won't even hear, just stuff their ears and just scream, that won't listen to him? He obeys and listens to their request. I think there's at least two things going on here I want to point out. First, um, God, allow, God 
God's allowing them to see his greater comparative worth. So God grants a request. He wants to allow them to learn the hard way that serving others above him is going to lead to the ruin. And that's a loving thing to do. It's the good old tough love approach. Um, over time, Israel is going to experience more and more tyranny and more and more pain from Israel's kings. Uh, this climax is actually just a couple of generations later. Israel was so frustrated with their king uh, just a couple of generations later that 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel actually rebelled against the monarchy, split off, and started a civil war. So Israel's begging for a king now, but just a couple of generations later, they're going to be begging for it to be taken away. So they learned the hard way that they needed to trust in God, not in kings, not in human kings. And you've all experienced this. I've experienced this. At times, God will give you what you're after. Not because it's a good-hearted request, but because He's lovingly letting you learn the hard way. Out of love for us, God will at times allow us to experience emptiness and failure of the things we try to put in His place. So we won't trust in Him. And unfortunately, it's because when, when our hearts are hard, when our hearts are obstinate, sometimes the only thing that will wake us up is pain and discomfort. And I've, I've seen this. I've, I feel like I've learned the hard way a lot in my life. But it's God's grace. And even though this is uh, painful, it's God's loving discipline and patience with us. He still desires to show his people how much better he is than our puny kings. And on top of that, I think there's a second thing that I want to point out to you going on here in God's response. And it's this, that though our sin is strong, God's loving plan is stronger. And here's what I mean. God took this rebellious, wrong-hearted request from Israel, and he made it the vehicle of his grace-filled plan. He, here's what he didn't do. He didn't say, dude, these rebellious people, I'm just going to give them terrible kings. I'm going to step off to the side. I'm just going to watch the, I'm going to watch the train wreck. That's probably what I would have done. But God didn't just lead Israel from here on out. He used the human kings to deliver Israel. He put King David on a throne, a man after God's own heart. And Israel prospered. He uh, put Solomon on the throne, who gave Israel the most glorious age they had had up to that time. He built, uh, the kings built temples and brought the ark back to Jerusalem. The kings through the kings. God poured out blessing through these kings. But the ultimate blessing I want to look at is that he would pour out through the kings of Israel would be the final king. In his humanity, Jesus Christ is often referred to as the royal offspring of King David. And the ultimate blessing to the whole world coming in Jesus would come through this initial act of Israel's rebellion wanting a king. God, and this is why this is so beautiful, God actually folds Israel's rebellion into his master plan of redemption. His plan is not blown up by our sin. And this is such good news. I don't want you to hear me wrong. Our sin has negative effects and really hurts us and hurts people. But our sin and our missteps will not thwart God's plan to be gracious and to bless you. His wisdom is bigger. His power is greater. And he'll still accomplish his good purpose for his people. Your bad decision that you made last week did not thwart God's plans. COVID-19 is not defeating God's purpose. That wasted time or that wasted season has not destroyed God's program for your life. 
And this means we don't need to constantly just fret and have anxiety about just making one wrong move or one wrong decision to throw off God's beautiful eternal plan for us. So I want to encourage you, strive for holiness, strive for obedience every day. But in doing that, in our failures and our weakness, rest. Rest in his enormity, rest in his vast wisdom. And rest with Paul in worship, as he says in Romans 11, he says, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand the decisions in his ways. So we've seen our tendency towards sin this morning, but we've also seen how we're met with a long-suffering, a patient, a wise, and a powerful God. And it's when we keep our eyes on Him, our satisfying King, that we're able to give up those little kings that we follow. And uh, one of the great joys that I have of being a pastor of this church is that I, a lot of times get to have a front row seat. Uh, this happened in our church all the time, and I just thought it'd be fruitful just to highlight some of the ways that I've seen that in our church. Sometimes we can just talk about, here's how bad we are, here's how great God is, but we also forget the middle sometimes that God is transforming His people. He's working through His Spirit to, uh, to give us grace upon grace, and He's changing us to be like Christ. I just wrote down some this morning. I was thinking about how Rebecca gave up the king of comfort to be on a COVID unit. I was thinking about how Jess gave up a safe neighborhood to love, uh, a safe neighborhood to love the youth of our city. I'm thinking about how the Corderos gave up a messy, easy life to, or an easy life to pursue the messy life of church planning, or how Allison gave up the king of her PhD plan to pursue Jesus and everything she has, or how David and Sophia gave up the king of their reputations to share the gospel with their coworkers or their neighbors, or how Megan gave up the king of independence to vulnerably invest in community, or how Tyler gave up the king of financial security to move into my basement <laughs> with no job. Or how the rights gave up the king of personal time to love and disciple so many in our church. That's right. I can make it. Or how so many couples in our church have gave up the king of control over when their family is going to start and their kids to rest in God's loving sovereignty. That's right. Now so many men have given up instant pleasure, the king of instant pleasure. For purity and for holiness. And now so many have given up the king of their family's approval to be obedient to Jesus. Yeah. And now so many have given the king of their own goals, their own life goals and preferences to move to the city and start a gospel church. Yeah. Whew. Friends, this is an invitation for us to praise God for what he's doing, but to ditch the little idols and the little kings in our life. Their payoff is so is far too low, and their cost is far too high. Jesus is the all-satisfying king that heals us of our wandering to worship other things. And so let's find true, overflowing, good worship in him as king alone. He's trustworthy. He can hold your weight of worship. Well, let's pray as we continue to worship him this morning. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find another message or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.